Welcome to the Hometown Hero Outdoors Podcast. Here is your host, Chris Tatro. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to the Hometown Hero Outdoors Podcast. Another Wednesday here. We have some unique guests today to talk about a very serious subject. I'm happy to call my friends and have support through them. We have three individuals on the podcast today. First and foremost, we'll talk about Staff Sergeant Timothy Goff. Staff Sergeant Goff, member of the Minnesota National Guard for 14 years and two combat deployments overseas, one to Kuwait, one to Afghanistan. Five years of sobriety, certified peer recovery support specialist by the state, and is currently working for the Nystrom Associates Residential Treatment Center in Big Lake, Minnesota. Our second guest is actually, uh, we have a married couple with us today, the Chaffees. Uh, Sergeant First Class Brian Chaffee spent four years active duty with the Marine Corps and then joined the National Guard in Minnesota. He was deployed to Iraq twice, running convoy escort missions, currently planning my retirement, his retirement, his bio he sent me, from the Army National Guard program set for uh, April 30th of 2022 with 23 years of service. So pretty awesome. And then we have Brian's wife, Jen Chaffee. Jen was recently promoted to Sergeant Major here in the Minnesota National Guard, works for the Resilience, Risk Reduction, and Suicide Prevention Program for the Minnesota Army National Guard. She's been an Applied Suicide Intervention Skills Training instructor for 11 years and a member of the Guard for 20 years. She's deployed three times overseas. Really appreciate you guys being here today. Thank you for being here and being a friend of me and the organization. Thank you, Chris. Thanks for having us. Thanks for having us. Yeah, not a problem. So, um, as I said earlier, we have September right on the corner. We plan to have this podcast airing on August 31st. And right on the corner is the Suicide Prevention and Awareness Month for the month of September, which is something us at Hometown Here Outdoors are really engaging in all year, just not September. But, you know, with this month, we're going to really hit home and raise awareness and have more conversations with everyone and explain to people it's okay to not be okay and to reach out if we need help. And this group of people that we have here on this podcast today are very, very good individuals to have here and with us, and they are a great tool. Uh, Jen has assisted Hometown Here Outdoors with the assist training, which is what I referred to as earlier as the Applied Suicide Intervention Skills Training Program. Um, I went through it myself with a handful of the field staff here in Minnesota, and it is very, very detailed and um, not your typical training that you would normally get from the military. So uh, we'll talk about that more in depth. But um, first and foremost, I just want to talk to, well, I'm going to refer to him as Tim now, Staff Sergeant Goth. (laughs) And and, uh, we'll go to Tim and we'll talk about his history a little bit. Um, how he got into the military and where his careers brought him and, and why he does what he does at this point. So, yeah, thanks for coming, Tim. Thanks for having me, Chris. Um, yeah, like I said, I've been in the Minnesota National Guard now for 14 years, just hit 14 years in July. Uh, like most of us, I decided to continue on, so I signed up for another six. But um, for me, uh, the Guard has always kind of been like a – I don't know how you want to say it, but uh, more of a, for me at the time of my life, I didn't have, uh, I guess you could say a mark 
on my life. I didn't know what I was doing, where I was going, or what to do. So I had a good buddy of mine from high school who joined when he was 17, convinced me to join the military one summer, and uh, pretty much rest is history from there. But um, yeah, I hit 14 years last July. Like I said, I've been overseas twice. Um, I've dealt with uh, suicide with others. I've dealt with suicide with myself. Um, and mine actually, I know that there's the um, stigma around, you know, like people that have been overseas say that, you know, oh, they're the ones that are more likely to commit suicide and stuff like that. Um, but I think that's changed in recent years. And even when I had an attempt myself, I was only 20 years old. I haven't even been deployed yet. Um, hmm. So, but with those, you know, I have quite a bit of experience with that. And then um, after my deployments is kind of where my uh, substance use uh, picked up. Um, and it got to a point, I mean, I can tell my story short version or a different time too, but it, it got to a point where I couldn't drink alcohol anymore without some type of con con consequence happening. Um, whether that be, you know, financial relationship, uh, relationship with, you know, friends and family, not just intimate relationship. Um, some type of consequence always happened when I drank, you know, whether I said something, spent too much money. I mean, there's been a Friday where I got paid and two weeks worth of pay and I had $10 come Saturday morning. So, Oof. um, it got pretty hectic towards the end, but I realized that I needed some type of help and went and checked myself into inpatient treatment. And now I sit here five years sober, still in the National Guard, um, but a hell of a lot better person. So, Well, we're glad you're here with us still because now you're turning around and, you know, everyone's got that low spot. And what matters is how you get past that. And you're out here helping others at this point. Because now you work as a uh, substance abuse counselor, is that right? Uh, kind of. So it's the title, my title is Lead Chemical Dependency Technician. So basically, we're kind of like, I guess you could say we're kind of like buddies or, you know, friends of people that have dealt with recovery or gone through the issues themselves. We're basically a counselor without the license, if you want to put it that way. So, like, I work at Nystrom's and Associates out in Big Lake, their residential treatment program, uh, program. They got, and they've actually quietly uh, blown up over the past year. I think over the past year, they've grown from, like, only 20 or so locations for mental health to now 46 locations across the state. And I think a few dip into, like, Iowa and surrounding states. But we're the only residential treatment program. Um, so there we deal with all spectrums of mental health with substance use. And basically for us as chemical dependency techs, you know, we're there when the client comes in, we're there when the client leaves, we're there when the with the client after uh, hours when all the counselors leave. So we get to really know the clients on a personal level. And majority of our time is honestly spent convincing the clients to stay. Because a lot of them get that wrapped around in their head that you know, I don't I need to be do here. This. Yeah. yeah, I don't want to be here. I can't do this. Uh, I just want to go use. I just want to make all this go away. But they're not getting 
understanding that, hey, man, we got to go through this tough stuff first to get right. so that the path is easier. Hmm. But yeah, well, that's it's, admirable. It's, yeah, it's it's rewarding. It is stressful um, because, yeah, there's some days it's it's mentally stressful where you just get home and you kind of just sit there on the couch for about an hour. No TV, right. no nothing and kind of just process. Ugh. Yeah, yeah, just let let the day sweat off you type of deal. But oh, I know that feeling. I mean, with my job, you know, I I, I can relate a hundred percent. You know, and but you know, to have been through the process yourself, you know, and know that there is another side to that. You know, that's got to be tough too at times. Yeah, it, uh, it and and that's the thing with addiction that's um, that sucks and that's scary is that no matter you know. Some people can go through treatments or quit, you know, using for, you know, six times, seven times, eight times, nine times. But sometimes it just, it never sticks, you know, and those, those ones get lost to the addiction. But that's as sad as it, as sad as it is, that's just the way the world goes. And some of them can never break that chain. I'm grateful that I've broken my own chain there and stopped that. But that's not to say that, you know, tomorrow I couldn't wind up loaded. But as long as I do what I have to do for today, that shouldn't be a problem. So, Yeah. Yeah. And those those addictive behaviors can manifest in different areas, too. Yep. You know, I've yeah, seen people it's... with addiction change their addiction because they moved away from something that might have been toxic towards them. But, in you know, manifest that energy into something different. Um not that it's necessarily a bad thing, but that addictive behavior does, it can move on to something else. Yeah. Um, my, uh, my dad himself is a recovering alcoholic and he's got shit. Now he just hit 43 years of sobriety. Oh, wow. And I'm only 33. So I'm, I'm grateful. I never saw him the way he was, but Cordy, if you ask my mom, it was pretty bad, but, um, but now, yeah, like as switching those addictive behaviors you're talking about, you know, he like he's a big pickleballer. One <laughs> year it was uh, inline rollerblading. He did a bunch of inline rollerblading all over the state. It was cycling, but now he hasn't done that in quite a few years. He's got like a $1,500 cycling bike that's just hanging in the rafters collected dust. But yeah, he kind of he just switches from one thing and then dives, you know, hard into it. But at least these things are all healthy now instead of, you know, yeah, bad, totally. bad things. But Yep. Well, you know, um, and you are good friends with the other two individuals we have here, Jed and Brian, and you guys feel free, to, feel free to chime in too, but how do you guys know each other? Brian, you want to tell everyone how you met me and how shocked of you were about how amazing I was? <laughs> <laughs> so... Uh... <laughs> So I, I grew up in the Cav community out of Pine City uh, with the Minnesota National Guard. Uh, I actually joined the Marine Corps late at the age of 25. Um, spent four years on active duty. Um, then I went to, I got picked up by the Cav. Um, once I came home, I got out for a year of active duty. And I just, you know, you get lost because you have your brother and your sister to the left and right of you all the time. And... To me, I miss that having that camaraderie and 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 that uh, that brotherhood sisterhood. 
Um, so I joined the Minnesota National Guard 2005. Um, that's where I met my wife. And then deployed to Iraq for, uh, I think we were over there 16, 17 months. Uh, came home. I did oper Operation Warrior Trainer at Camp Atterbury for a few years. And then was asked to come to Minnesota to help train all the units deploying out of Minnesota. Uh, so, yeah, I was based out of a unit in Pine City, uh, 194 Cav, and then uh, Jen was getting ready to deploy for her third time, and I wanted to get closer to home, so I requested to get transferred to Stillwater um, in 2018, and that's where I met Sergeant Goth. Um, and just his personality, I never asked him to do anything because he comes off with that lighthearted, doesn't take too much serious, very approachable, but I didn't really trust him with anything, so I never asked him to do anything. But then to come find out, he's one of the smartest dudes you're ever going to meet. So. so he played that dumb card pretty good. I was gonna say, man, you could just say how it is. You thought I was stupid. <laughs> <laughs> what what rank were you at that point, Tim? Uh, that was E five. Yeah, I think it was E five. Oh man, I'd say specialist. That would make sense because he's walking off the clipboard, you know. And... <laughs> no, we went because me and Brian for a unit had to go. We were on that last NTC rotation, and that was during the. Uh, the prime of you know COVID and everything, so it was just very political and a lot of stuff didn't make sense. So it was some of the worst times in the military I've ever had, but it was also one of the funnest. But I joked because at that time I was a five and our platoon sergeant wasn't there, so I was acting platoon sergeant. So I was I would always say you know I'm a five getting paid as a five in the spot of an E seven, but I act like a four, so it didn't. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> didn't really make too much sense, but we got oh, through man. it. So it just kept you a corporal in. <laughs> no, 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 no. <laughs> now it's just getting dirty. <laughs> well, that's cool. Six. Oh, and you guys hang out quite a bit now. You know, I just saw you what two weekends ago? No, last weekend at the uh, local golf tournament that we got invited to for our donation. And it seems like you guys golf and do some other things together. Yeah, we try to. Uh get linked up quite a bit and i think uh after brian you know found out all the shit i've been through in my history and me knowing uh things that he's been through and what you know he's had to deal with um i think there's that bond too as that aspect of we both want to try to help people as much as possible um and then we also have brian's got you know the millions of resources and different places to reach out to for help for things. But then also Brian has me as a resource as to reach out to as someone who's, you know, kind of been through it and is open about it, willing to talk about it. So, I mean, nine times out of 10, it's, it's basically just a conversation, having it with somebody, you know, how's it going? What's going on? Tell me about it type of stuff. Um, I think, and I... Go ahead, Brian. No, and I think with him being a military member, going through the struggle, bettering himself, and then going to get trained to help other soldiers, I think there's that connection because it's so much easier to talk to a soldier that's been through it 
and right. isn't just talking about it. True. So, to me, I feel like uh, Tim can be so much more approachable than, say, a lieutenant wearing a uniform or, you know, talking to the chaplain. I mean, all really good resources, but to have a soldier from your rank and file that has struggled, gone through it, bettered himself, doesn't right. judge 100%. Um, and that was one of the things through my military career, just trying to get as much training and master resiliency training, whether it be the, the sharp victim advocate training, the assist training. Um, just It's a cliche, but having all those tools in your toolbox that you're prepared, it's not necessarily for you, but it's for the person to the left and right of you. Right. To help them, so... Yeah, I mean, you're never really fully prepared ever, but you try your best, you know. Yeah. Yeah. Well, thanks for being here tonight, too, Brian. I appreciate it. I failed to mention earlier, Brian's also on our field staff for the state of Minnesota, and he's been very involved in the last, what, uh, been a couple years now? Uh, I'm I'm trying every day to get more involved, Chris. <laughs> oh, I know you. I know you are. <laughs> That's not what I'm, I'm not calling you out on anything, my man. Uh, <laughs> no, uh, no. The last, uh, I think it was last December. I called you and I said, "Hey, I'm sick of uh, just standing by the sidelines, and I want to get more involved." So, yeah, it's, it's been baby steps, just with family, work, and and whatnot. But it, everything seems to be coming together as of lately. So, when you got a retirement coming up, you know, in April. So, I mean, yeah. that's a transition as well. And you know, now now you have your wife who super outranks you, so you have to help her. Right? Yeah, that is correct. Yeah, <laughs> and we're not keeping Jen quiet on purpose here. She's next here. I, we got a lot of experience and knowledge sitting on this podcast, so we're going to introduce Jen here. So, as you all know, we said that Jen was recently promoted to Sergeant Major here for the state of Minnesota's National Guard. Not the whole National Guard, but uh, but Jen, do you want to introduce yourself real quick and kind of go through your military career, how you got started, and where you are today? Uh, yeah, sure. So. I uh, joined uh, my senior year of high school. Uh, 9-11 happened my senior year of high school. Uh, and because of that event, I was inspired to try to, you know, do my part. Um, you know, I wanted I wanted to, that to not happen again. Um, you know, being a young, well, at that point, 17-year-old kid, you know, no no future plans for, for marriage and children, but didn't want my family, you know, at that moment to have to ever experience something like that again and my future family. Um, so I was all set to go off to school for physical therapy with a full ride scholarship and then instead decided to walk into a recruiter's office uh, for, for the National Guard and Picked the National Guard over um, active duty for the fact that I still wanted to uh, maintain being being able to be home and being close to my family. Um, at that point, uh, I had a grandfather that was still alive. Um, was the only um, well, him and my uncle are the only two um, in my family that had ever served, um, and so I wanted to be able to be close to him uh, still. And versus going active duty. So I uh, went off to, to boot camp after graduating high school. Uh, and in 2004, at 
what was I, 20, I think 19, 20 years old, um, deployed for my first time to Kuwait, uh, returned from that deployment um, and volunteered to go on another deployment right away. Um, so I left about two months after coming home, um, which is on the deployment that I met Brian on um, in 2006. What was that deployment? That, that was in 2006 to Iraq. To Iraq, okay. Mm-hmm. Uh, so did did that deployment. Uh, then Brian and I came uh, home. Well, at that point, when uh, when we first started dating, uh, I was just a little specialist. <clears throat> so you see how the worlds have turned. Um, <laughs> so, uh, you know, we... That's where we met. I was a little young specialist. He was he was an E five. Uh, we came back from that deployment. He was an E six. I was I was an E five. I I got conditionally promoted due to my leadership on deployment, um, and then found a, a a permanent spot upon coming home. Um, you know, I've spent my military career in all sorts of different positions, from you know being the soldier that was doing the work to the team leader to the squad leader to the platoon sergeant. So then a first sergeant, I was the first sergeant for just over five years. Um, one of those years was uh, during my last deployment, which was in uh, 2019 and 2020. Um, and then now um, have made it up to sergeant major. Um, that's all, you know, on the on the traditional, you know, one week in a month side um, has been my promotion. Um, in 2011, though, I started working full time um, on what we call ADOS, which is additional duty operational support um, in the in the program that I'm in right now um, in with a special emphasis on suicide prevention, uh, but also doing a lot of stuff within our resilience program. Uh, so I've been doing that since 2011, minus the one year break that I took away for deployment, uh, but was for- fortunate enough to be able to come back into the role um, when I came back from deployment. That's pretty cool. Um, so I'm just trying to reference deployment times here. So you said Kuwait was your first deployment, and that was what year? 2004. 2004. Okay, so I was in coming back from bosnia then and then all of you guys went to iraq did you guys do the first bct deployment yes brian and i did yep okay where were you guys at when that deployment happened we were in Talil. Talil. Talil, okay. <laughs> yeah i was on anaconda up in balad disneyland well we just I was in high school man thanks i appreciate that <laughs> I know she said 2004, and I was like, "Oh, uh, let's see. I think I was a sophomore." <laughs> oh man! I think I was just keeping my diapers off. Right. Yeah. <laughs> Jen, you said you enlisted right after 9/11. Do you remember your enlistment date? I assume you do. Uh, yeah. So it wasn't uh, right after 9/11. Uh, so the first thing I did right after 9/11 um, that that very next day was I went and I donated blood because that was the first thing that I could think of to do. Uh, And then I, um, I actually didn't enlist until May 21st. Um, So it was literally right before I, you know, was supposed to graduate. um, I decided to join. All right. Yeah, no, I, it's kind of interesting because we had a similar path. I was a junior as well. And I ended up enlisting uh, on 920. 
and then oh. I didn't go to basic until after my senior year. But um, yeah, it was kind of similar paths right there. But <clears throat> so yeah, and, wanna... and now you know not <laughs> not a similar path anymore. You know, for for most people, you know, because now I mean now all these young soldiers coming in now or you know military members period they they weren't even alive nine eleven. Uh, someone was just sitting in my house today with my wife. I, she was like, I was three when that happened. I'm like, thanks. I, I really would have done without you saying that. Appreciate it, though. That's, that's us now. That's great. Yeah. I was going to say, I could make you guys feel old and tell you that I watched that on TV in seventh grade social studies class. So. Oh, my Lord. Yeah, so I'm just going to mute your mic for the rest of this now. So. Well, yeah, I still, um, it's that in my head, so. Yeah, totally. <laughs> uh, so, yeah, I, I kind of want to discuss, you know, the main reason why we're here tonight, too. You know, um, I ended up meeting uh, Brian through an acquaintance that was on our uh, podcast. That would have been two or three weeks ago. Uh, Eric Mossberg. That's how I met Brian. And um, I know Dan Meyer, our president, began to have conversations with Jen regarding some training hometown here outdoors uh as you all know you know with their outdoor adventures you know that is a way for us to help with mental health with individuals to break away from the daily grind get them off the couch get outside and change up their frame of mind in order just to do something different um meet new people and then understand that you know everyone's been through something same or similar to some extent and that it can be compared and helpful for these people to have resources and make these friends to lean on uh, such as, you know, what Tim was saying and Brian was saying about Tim, you know, being have gone through his experiences and being able to be a resource to others. So, you know, we wanted to do something a little bit more because we had more and more people that were reaching out to us in the organization at, you know, different times of the day asking us if we can reach out and help them. Um, individuals, you know, who were, you know, suicidal and, and contemplating it. And we needed to we had people reach out to them and help them out and give them the resources they needed every time. And I, we started thinking about it at the board level about what are we going to do, you know, to help elevate what we do because we offer the service of outdoor stuff, but we need to bring it to the next level. What can we do to at least have another uh, tier, you know, of training in order for us to be able to handle these. And it's constantly being analyzed and reanalyzed to see where we went. So I went through several meetings with different people. Um, locally here in Minnesota to see what kind of programs they had. And uh, Dan had some conversations with Jen about the program called assist. We'll dive into that a bit more here, but I remember specifically I was on actually on a phone call. Uh, it wasn't a phone call. It was a conference call with several people with the beyond the yellow ribbon group. And they're like, Oh yeah. Uh, Sergeant Chafee supposed to be here. And I'm like, Oh, Brian. They're like, who's Brian? <laughs> And I was like, I, what do you mean, who's Brian? And I, I was so confused. Like, no, no, it's First Sergeant Jen Chaff. I'm like, ah, okay. So I hadn't met Jen at that point. You know, so it kind of came full circle at that point. And um, we began to have a conversation with Jen um, regarding her abilities to help with the assist training with HHO. Um, so one of the things that helped spark this was um, – one of our HHO field staff is Clint Lutz out of Stillwater, Minnesota here. And he had come to us. Uh, we had known that his brother had taken his own life 
Um, it would have been October 22nd, t- almost two years ago. And he had come to us and said, hey, they raised some funds um, through some friends and some networks out in Wisconsin, and they want to do something to donate to us. What can we do with it? And uh, the discussion started with, you know, we've wanted to do additional training for our staff. Let's get something put together with the funds that he's bringing in or is donated. And that's where we ended up coming up with this walk uh, for the Cole J. Lutz Memorial Walk that is to raise awareness for suicide and PTSD. And uh, further conversation was with the Chaffees about training and where we could put the money towards. And uh, the assist program seemed to fit very, very well. And um, the walk occurred. We raised over $20,000, and that $20,000 was applied to the training um, and to house um, our field staff and feed them while they came to Stillwater, Minnesota. And the plan is to use the leftover money for staff across the U.S. And Jen led that training for us. And it was uh, – actually, you just did that the training this weekend again, did you not? Correct, yep. I just – first, um, soldiers for the Minnesota National Guard. Yeah, you know, so it's two-day training. And uh, it's not what you would expect, you know um, – from something that the military would host or put on, you know, usually it's death by PowerPoint and your eyes roll in the back of your head, but this is engaging. Um, and it makes you think outside the box and also be uncomfortable, but it's okay to be uncomfortable while doing this. Cause it's an uncomfortable subject for most, you know? So, but, um, Jen, do you want to talk about how you got into the assist training or maybe talk about other programs that, I mean, we don't want to slander anyone, but, other programs that you potentially, you know, engaged in and why you think this one's one of the better ones that you've been through and teach? Yeah. So I, uh, I went to the training to become a trainer in, uh, in 2011. So shortly after I started, um, in my position, um, I didn't really know much about it. Um, to be honest, I didn't really know much about suicide uh, in general um, at that point, you know, other than the, the trainings that I had received from, from the military, um, you know, as far as our awareness trainings and stuff. Um, and so I, uh, uh, it was, it was definitely an eye opener going to the training. And I, after leaving that, that trainer's course, I could really tell that this training was doing a lot more than just teaching people how to escort somebody to a resource. Um, and that, that, that other people than the, the, you know, I mean, you know, some people um, that are having thoughts of suicide, they need to have um, a medical professional or a mental health professional. You know, they need that, that person that is actually trained and educated to help support them. But there are also a huge chunk of people that just need somebody to listen and help them navigate through what's going on because they, you know, they they feel as if they've tried everything and nothing's working. Um, and so I could, uh, you know, after completing the assist training, I could tell that like that's what this was, right? This isn't going to be teaching people how to become clinicians. It's not going to be teaching them how to become a doctor. You know, it's going to be teaching them more than just escorting somebody to the hospital, um, which, you know, is more of the standard procedure when somebody is having uh, suicidal thoughts or the the first thought that people think to do is to bring them to the hospital for 72 hour hold because they don't know what else to do. Um, 
you know, having uh, passive thoughts of suicide don't necessarily result in needing to be put on a 72-hour hold. Um, it's needing to have a safety plan um, or a safety framework, you know, put in place so they can keep safe while they figure out what it, it you know, while they navigate through their problems. Um, and that is what this, this training, you know, really teaches people how to engage somebody in a conversation how to not be afraid to ask them directly, are you thinking about suicide? Are you having thoughts of suicide? Um, you know, no passiveness about it at all, being just very direct. Um, and then taking the time to actually really hear their story. That's the part that we forget a lot is really hearing, you know, what's going on with them uh, versus just, oh, you're having thoughts of suicide? Here, here's a resource, um, you know, which is historically kind of th the majority of what people learn. Um, this is taking the time to hear what it is that got you there and to help them find the, help them discover themselves, um, you know, why they shouldn't take their life, um, what they still have to live for, and then creating a safe plan with them. Uh, and, you know, being part of that safe plan or not being part of that safe plan. Um, and, you know, it's, uh, not necessarily uh, a forever solution, right? Obviously, we hope that it will be a forever solution and that safety plan will be something that keeps that person, you know, here forever. Uh, but also understand that, hey, guess what? We're humans uh, and life is very complex. And so things happen. And so maybe someday we have to create a safe plan again. Um, so the training I just felt was absolutely phenomenal. Um, I attended some other trainings um, through uh, other programs um, such as QPR, which is question, Persu question, persuade, respond, which was very similar to um, what we had learned in the military as far as like asking directly um, and then, you know, getting, trying to get that person to a resource, which again is now not providing that, um, that community kind of level or that peer support kind of level um, of support that you get from somebody that's been trained in assist. Um, so I've been a big champion now, you know, of assist now ever since going through it. Um, Living Works are the, um, the creators of assist. Uh, they have a few other programs as well that are, um, you know, kind of tier down. Um, assist is the top tier for their training. Um, and that's why I try to, to do that one more because it is one that actually provides, you know, any individual, whether you're in the military or not, you know, a, a person that's actually really going to be there to hear what got you there versus assuming what got you there um, and help you find, you know, some solutions versus giving you uh, solutions. I thought, you know, like a, a term that's usually used frequently in law enforcement to shock the conscience and you know the first few hours of the very first day of the assist training definitely does that it it makes you think and uh i think what i enjoyed well i shouldn't say enjoy but one of the things i thought was very beneficial let's say beneficial um with the assist training was you know it wasn't then a step by step by step but it forced you to get to a certain area um, an answer with a situation, if that makes sense, in order to feel like you can move on to the next spot. It wasn't like a check these boxes and move on, but like, are you meeting and asking the right questions in order to get to where you need to be before you move forward 
to be able to get that person to that safety plan. I thought that was really beneficial. And I mean, correct me if I'm wrong. I mean, that's, it's been a few months and I've used it a couple times, but um, does that sound like an accurate assessment kind of of how that whole system works there? Yeah. So the, the intervention model itself is, uh, you know, there's lots of evidence and in research on it, uh, which is one of the other things that I really like about it. It's not just, you know, I made this up and going to make it work kind of thing. Right. So there's evidence behind it. And that evidence behind it is, uh, asking people that are survivors of suicide, you know, like what, what did you need? Uh, what would have helped you? Um, and that's how they then created the intervention model um that you got trained on and that we use when we're when we're intervening with people and it meets the the goal of it is to meet the needs of the person that is having suicidal thoughts right and so yes there's a little bit of a component of like you know first you go through this and then you know you you, ha- you have the model right for a, a checklist type thing but it's not oh, okay check the block check the block it's really when, when the person that's having those suicidal thoughts, their needs have been met is kind of then when you carry the conversation to the next thing. Yeah, it develops and it's, it's, it's interactive. It's not just a one-sided clinical diagnosis type situation and move on. It's very interactive and dependent on good, strong conversations as much as you can have, you know, at that point in time, even and sometimes those situations might take some time, um, it's not like it's just a 20 minute phone call and you're good to go and moving on. You know, these people might be in a, a really dark place or have, they might be intoxicated or on t- some type of substance, you know, and they're not hundred percent thinking clearly. And part of the training is, you know, Hey, let's get them in a more clear mind and not be potentially on a substance, get that out of their system and then continue to have that conversation. That might take some time. Yeah, absolutely. And that's it. You know, that's a big component with, with it as well, right? The, the individual must be able to participate in their intervention. If they can't participate in the intervention because they are on some kind of a substance of some sort um, or, um, you know, maybe off their, their medication and, you know, coherently quite aren't there, you know, that's a, a checkbox that we, that, you know, that's part of the model of, okay, they can't participate in this, then, you know, we need we need to ensure that we can keep somebody with them, you know, have them in, in a safe space um, until they're able to then actually complete the intervention. Hey, and Tim, I'm not trying to throw you on the spot here, but you know, you said that, you know, at one point you had a suicide attempt as well, right? Are you willing to talk about that? Yeah, no problem. I mean, so, you know, <laughs> during your time um, where things were not going well for you and you know those thoughts crossed your mind and you had an attempt you know now i assume you've been through the assist training as well right well uh, that's what i was going to ask uh feels weird calling this but jen was it uh uh, did you do some of that assist training in that sio uh suicide intervention officer training that we did that me and darius and ryan came to yes that's the curriculum that we use Mm-hmm. Right. And then was that part of that pamphlet, right, that you handed out, I think? That little Yep, that little that little card. Yep. Okay. And you yeah. had a workbook. Yep. Yeah, that was actually that's uh I think that's a very good model and a um it's very like you said before, uh Chris, it's it's almost comfortable but very uncomfortable at the same time. Um 
when we went through that training, like, and this was <clears throat> well past my attempt, but when we went through that training, you know, at first I kind of felt like, oh, no problem, can, you know, ask anybody. But then when you actually sit down and, you know, practice interviewing with somebody um, or talking to them, trying to get to that point to find out if they are, if they do have thoughts or, you know, if they have a plan drawn up, are they actually, like, trying to complete that plan? Um, it does get pretty uh, uncomfortable. And it's it, intense. It, it's, yeah, it's it's very it's very heavy, and it, it's hard to <clears throat> jump that gap and actually ask that question, you know, are you going to kill yourself or are you trying to kill yourself? Um, but, yeah, that training I thought was great. It was a lot – I mean, I've had – prior you know um not full-blown suicide trainings but you know they hand out these ace cards in the military and stuff like that but the training that we went through that jen put on was uh, it was very informational very um kind of got you out of that that bubble so to speak to actually ask those hard questions Yeah, but yeah. I don't. Did that answer your question, Chris? I don't know well, if I went a totally different no, way there or not. Totally no. And a part of the question too was, you know, you said it was when you were twenty. Mm-hmm. At that point in time, was anything that available? Anybody approach you with any of that type of support in that type of way or anything? No, I think. Um, well, it's it. Not funny is not right. Not the right word, but more ironic because at the time that that happened, I actually had two roommates. We had a three-bedroom apartment in St. Cloud. Um, But, like, looking back on it, I think mine was more of that underlying addiction substance use disorder that I was more not willing to face that. And I decided that um, suicide was a better option. Um, Because, yeah, for me, it was kind of just that that pitfall of one thing after another going wrong. Um, and then me catastrophize, catastrophizing them and thinking, you oh, know, it's ending, everything's coming, everything's falling apart, you know, but really it's just a bad day. It's not, the world's not ending. My, my life was still good. I was alive, but I was catastrophizing them. Every little thing that happened to me as like, oh man, this is another major event when really it wasn't. Um, and I just got to that point where <clears throat> I felt, I felt so like just alone and disconnected that I felt like the problems and issues I was having, there's no way no one else was having them. I felt like they were just mine, that no one else had ever dealt with what I was dealing with and that it was me, me, me. Um, so then, yeah, eventually I attempted, um, I just tried ODing on a bunch of medications that I had left over and all these ibuprofens and stuff like that. But, <clears throat> um, but yeah, it was just that it's more or less like I felt super alone that no one could compare to me. No one has ever dealt with what I was dealing with. It was that suction away from reality that like, I just couldn't comprehend that, man, there's everybody deals with this stuff. Like, you know, and all that and I think that's the for me personally I think that's kind of like that hook to draw someone out of that because I know nowadays I mean don't get me wrong technology and advancement yeah it's great but I think 
that whole social media platform in some ways is destroying us. Like, you know, the Instagrams and yeah. I mean, I can't say TikTok because I have one, <laughs> but <laughs> no, China, China's got yeah. China. But um, but I think like you know that projection of like, hey, I'm I'm a billionaire. I go on these yachts. I got these parties. I got, like all this stuff. But it's like, okay, is that all for show? Is that real? And I think too many people compare themselves to that stuff. Right. And I think you know, and then that puts them in that depression of like. Well, you know, I work a shit nine to five. I have zero dollars or, you know, I have a crappy car, things like that. So I think that's that social media aspect really swings the general population into a a dark depression just because of what they see on all these social media accounts. And then they reflect back and go, why don't I have that? So that was kind of like me. Like I kind of looked at everybody else and said, well, I wanted that and I didn't have it or. Well, they're not going to understand what I'm going through, so there's no way I can compare to them type of thing. So I just ended up shutting down. <clears throat> yeah, it's difficult. No, I appreciate you sharing all that too. You know, it's I think it's good for our listeners to even, and members, everyone, to be able to hear people speak about that, you know, and talk about how things can get better. And honestly, like, even just listening to what you had to say, you know, there's some pointers in there that are a hidden message that aren't mm-hmm. directly said to people that can be, you know, used in order for people to help maybe their situation, you know, and that social media is addicting, you know, and does mm-hmm. create a false reality for a lot of people. And if people can't separate, you know, that social media world from real life, you know, that can be very, very difficult too. And um, a lot of these individuals who portray these extravagant lives really don't, not all of them really have an extravagant life or they're suffering somewhere else. And that right. social media is a dopamine dump for them in order to get that need and that that gratitude and the support from everyone who's watching in order to feel good about themselves for that minute until they get mm-hmm. the next post up. And um, that definitely does drive society in a, in a different way. Right. Yeah. And <clears throat> go ahead, Brian. No. And Chris, I think a big part of HHO is the conversations. It's not just the hunting and the fishing getting people outdoors. It's the conversations that are had at the barbecues, the fishing events, the hunting events with everybody. I mean, everybody has gone through something and just getting people to open up so they know that they're not alone, I think is, is absolutely huge. And it's kind of nice too, when you do go to these and people do our trips or our events and, you look around the room and look at who's engaging with each other. Obviously when everyone first meets, you know, it's a little awkward and everyone's trying to figure out who's who and try to understand the dynamic of who everyone's there. But eventually the phones start going away and people aren't texting or on social media. Like you would normally see just random people doing throughout the day. And by the end of the trip, you know, no one's really been on their phone. And uh, like, I just came back from surgeon Bay with uh, a bunch of law enforcement officers and, I don't think I saw anyone on their phone for more than five minutes because everyone was enjoying the the group that was there and the camaraderie, you know, and that's part of the conversation too And is the law enforcement aspect of things. Um, and Jen, if you got any type of statistics, I'm just going to rattle a few off here, but, um, you know, I'm just looking back to the VA's website from 2019. That's the most recent statistics I could find. Do you have anything that's newer? Uh, well, the CDC has uh, 2020 data, which was um, there is, I think, 48 
thousand and some change, just under 49,000 people in the U S that died by suicide in 2020. Yeah. I just, yeah, I think I'm looking at that right now. Um, it was the 12th leading cause of death in the U S was suicide. Mm-hmm. And, uh, that number you gave is accurate. Um, but there was also 1.2 million estimated suicide attempts in 2020, you know, and that was in the heat of COVID and everything going on about the 2019 stats that I have is for veterans alone. And I think that's the only, I don't think the CDC specifically reports the veterans side of things, do they? No, that's where the VA does that. Yeah. So the VA's got it at 2019 was 6,261 veterans, you know, just in the year 2019 alone, you know, and then the last piece here, I have law enforcement, law enforcement officers in 2019, there was 228 current or former officers died by suicide compared to 172 in 2018. You know, so those numbers went up and I've, I know they're continuing to go up, which is not what we want them to go. We want them to go down, you know? And so it's, it's a very real deal and it's in a lot of people's minds, you know, 1.2 million people estimated in one year. That's a lot. Yeah. So the, um, the statistic is usually 5% of a population will have a suicide behavior of some kind in any given year. It's unfortunate, you know, and I've seen it ranging from very young children, you know, 12, 13, 14 years old plus now, you know, and a lot of that has to do with that social media as well. Mm-hmm. But, um, you know, everyone, everyone in the population has some form of struggle with the suicide doesn't have to be one career or another. I know our field staff has now utilized the assist training, not only with inner membership in HHO, but also outside individuals at a workplace who may not be law enforcement or military. And uh, I think that's been a very beneficial training for our field staff. And um, I greatly appreciate, you know, you guys bringing it to the forefront for us, um, knowing that it's, a tool or an asset available for our field staff to use, um, you know, cause we really need to work at getting these numbers back down. And I know during COVID, you know, things got worse, you know, with isolation and substance use, which is exactly where we don't want people to be, you know, getting out and doing different things and being able to um, have a, a Avenue to be able to discuss these issues, but also to um, be able to recognize that they need that help. So um, it's just a very tough topic, but I think that things are turning and things are getting better when it comes to the discussion regarding mental health. Even for law enforcement agencies, um, they're getting better at recognizing PTSD. Um, Part of this last Sturgeon Bay trip, I was with some police officers out of Minneapolis, the third precinct that was burned down during the riots. And out of their entire mid shift, there's only three law enforcement officers who are still there and have not PTSD'd out because of the events that occurred. So pretty significant. And uh, the assist training isn't just focused on one type of person. And I, I like that a lot. Yeah, I think, uh, I think too, what uh, just kind of like the general population um, might not fully understand with, suicide and along with you know substance use or addiction however you want to label it is like they don't discriminate you know it doesn't matter 
your race, your sex, your job, any of that, though, you know, suicide affects all. Same with addiction and substance use. It, it doesn't matter what you do for a living, uh, where you live, how much money you make, all that, you know, none of that plays a factor into those uh, type of things. They can creep up on you at any moment, and it doesn't matter who you are or anything like that. Because for me, like, I, I go to my AA club uh, weekly every Tuesday night, and you know without saying names or anything but we got we got guys there that own their own business we have you know guys that did 40 years at one company and retired we have people like we have marketing people we got uh, it people we got blue collar you know all these different jobs and descriptions and race and sex and but they're all there for the the same thing addiction so it's it's um it's mind-blowing to see that it doesn't matter who you are, what you do, any of that stuff. All that, you know, those suicide and addiction can creep up on you at any time. <clears throat> yeah, it's, uh, it's um, something that we are attempting to get better at at HHO as well. You know, um, one of the things that I actually just recently discussed with Jen was we do have this training available and we do utilize it, you know, people who reach out to us and now we're getting these people the help that they need at a, at a better level. And the question is, what do we do after that now? And something I'd like to develop in time. And I know Jen's super busy with her schooling and everything like that, but I'd like to get Jen more involved with our uh, follow-up type situation and develop a position that, if the assist training is utilized, you know, we need to have some additional resources on hand uh, just to follow up, you know, just to check in occasionally to see how things are going or what additional things we can do to assist them in order to take those next couple steps after the assist was used. And uh, I really hope I can talk you into that at some point, Jen. Chris, yes, you'll be able to. We just have to be able to sit down and talk about it. <laughs> yeah, no, we will. I know you're busy with your your schooling for our major and everything. So, but I know Brian. Brian pretty much told me he'd force you into helping anyway. So you can you can thank your husband for volunteering you. Yeah, it, it happens frequently. That I mean, that's that's really how the connection even happened. You know, with uh, me and Dan um, to even get you guys the assist to begin with. Um, Brian randomly, you know, was conversating with Dan and was like, oh, my wife can do something for you uh, without telling me. That uh, is a true story. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and, and now we're going to hopefully fly you to Texas to help out down there. Absolutely. There you go. Brian said it, so it's happening. I will write that down. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so, so um, go ahead. Well, Chris, so something else that, you know, I would like to mention, you know, for the fact that, like, you're, you know, um, you know, and Tim had mentioned, too, right, the fact that, you know, suicide, it, it doesn't discriminate. It doesn't matter, you know, who you are, what you do, what color you are, what language you speak, how old, you know, none of that stuff matters, right? Um and so, you know, something that, um, you know, kudos to um, the United States uh, and whoever um, made it happen, uh, 
but the the national suicide prevention hotline um you know has now changed from that really long you know 1-800 number to just 988 uh so when people are you know having thoughts of suicide or just in crisis instead of trying to remember a really long 1-800 number they right. can just call 988 and instead of yeah. calling 911 you know they can call the 988 and get connected to somebody that can help them you know with their their crisis and their mental well-being versus um you know the the crime or the you know medical emergency that's going on right yeah no that's a huge step in the right direction you know and the va has gotten a lot better with a lot of that stuff too um you know i was just today i know i have some medication that's an alternative to ibuprofen that the va has prescribed me and because i eat ibuprofen ibuprofen like candy and they told me i shouldn't and uh so this other medication they gave me, I'm just looking at the bottle and I didn't realize this till recently, but you know, that hotline is on the bottle itself, you know, so when they prescribe this medication, they're doing better at least, you know, getting you the materials to help with a resource that you can reference pretty quickly if needed, you know, and I'm, I'm assuming that, you know, now that there's a change to the 988, that'll probably end up getting pushed out onto this medication and other, you know, literature that's being pushed out to help veterans and uh not just the veterans but everyone in general you know, and just spreading the word and knowing the support's available and people are out there willing to listen and assist and move forward with you um you know i've used it on a couple occasions one with a good friend of mine you know and even though you might know them inside and out and be a really good friend it's still difficult you know you know not only to wrap your head and watch them go around or going through what they are currently in, but also helping them get and push them down that road far enough where they are getting that follow-up done. So it's, it's, uh, it's just developing and creating that relationship and strengthening that in order for that relationship to grow, to ensure that they get on the right path. Absolutely. You know, I mean, like Tim said, you know, he felt alone, right? Right. That's a, uh, one of the, the biggest things people feel alone like they're the only one going through it. Um, and so, you know, building those relationships, um, having converse, just having conversations about, you know, life struggles, even though we don't want to talk about our personal lives and life struggles, right? But having those conversations helps with the, um, you know, normalizing the uh, reality that we all have problems. Too many of them, too many of them, you know, and state of everything always influences everything. So <laughs> just being able to have the right head spacing and timing for military reference in order to move forward there, you know, is very helpful and knowing where you can go and talk to. So I feel like I've said the same thing three times really quick there uh, <laughs> over and over again, but um I know we're nearing an hour here. Is there any other additional things that you guys would like to discuss before we close out the podcast? Um, I just uh, want to well, say, I, like, I, I, oh, go ahead, Jen. No, you go ahead, Tim. No, you go ahead, Jen. Oh, man, it's a Minnesota standoff, <laughs> Midwest standoff here. All right, I'll go. I'll okay, go. I'm going to go. Uh, what? Jeez. <laughs> oh, man. Okay, I'll go. Uh, so I, I'm going. Um, so, I mean, the only other thing, you know, I would like to add, you know, uh, kind of, you know, 
it made me think of it when you said that that headspace and timing thing, um, you know, is that 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 timing piece. Right. Uh, you know, if you know, if anybody listening to this finds themselves, you know, feeling suicidal at, you know, at any point, you know, the the big thing is to make sure that you create time and space between yourself um, and and the means um, of you know, that you are going to choose for, for suicide, um, statistically showing, um, just that three seconds time frame that it takes to take that lock off of a gun, uh, could be that three seconds that causes you to rethink what it is that you're doing, uh, to, you know, the three seconds it takes you to, uh, open that pill bottle that's childproof yet also adult proof, um, you know, is that time that, could take to make you, um, you know, rethink and maybe have, have an intervention. Um, and so, you know, that, that importance of, you know, maintaining, um, safety, you know, in, in your home, um, against, you know, any means, um, is, is very important and having that, that time and space, uh, between it is something that could save, you know, their lives. Totally agree. Totally agree. And before Tim goes with his piece, uh, Jen, there was a couple of videos that, you know, outside of our training, we, we looked at, there was an, in, two individuals who had, you know, attempted to take their own lives. Uh, remember those two individuals? I think one of them was the San Francisco bridge. Yep. That was uh, Kevin Hines. So very inspirational individual to uh, look up any of his content that he has out there regarding his attempt to take his life uh, by jumping off the golden gate bridge and immediately regretting it seconds after jumping off the bridge and surviving. And uh, do you want to talk about how to find that resource by any chance? Uh, I, yeah. So, I mean, Kevin Briggs has a, 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 a video or movie out um, that's called The Ripple Effect. Um, and, it, and it talks about his, you know, his journey, um, you know, what got him to, to the point of thinking of suicide and, and the fact of, you know, walking out to that bridge and, you know, not necessarily wanting to take his life, but felt, you know, all alone and all alone again, you know, and like it was the only option. And, and like you said, Chris, he jumped and immediately regretted it, but had, you know, couldn't, there, there was no way out of, out of that one, right. Until he hit the water and, and then hoped he survived. Um, you know, it's the kind of the same thing with, uh, you know, the firearms, you know, once, once you pull that trigger, there's, there's no going back kind of a thing. And, um, so the, um, uh, Kevin Hines has a very big, uh, movement and in, in nonprofit, um, towards, uh, suicide awareness. Um, and yeah, his, his ripple movie, uh, ripple effect, um, really shares his story. Yeah. It's a pretty moving piece just to be able to hear everything that he had gone through up until that point of that decision and then regretting it immediately and the recovery and everything after the fact is very inspirational and a very good message to listen to. Tim, <laughs> fire <My turn>? away. <laughs> yeah. Um, no, uh, quick question on that video though, Jen. Was he the one too? I think he said when he was standing up that didn't he do it a couple days? He went and stood up there and he said, if one person would have just said hi to me, I wouldn't have done it or something. Or is that somebody else? Um, that. I can't remember if that one was uh, Kevin Hines or um, one of the uh, people that uh, Kevin Briggs, who was a police officer that patrolled the uh, the Golden Gate Bridge, um, 
he had uh, saved uh, a, a person's, I mean, he probably saved multiple people's lives, uh, but one of them, he went on and, you know, they shared his story and stuff. It, it was one of those two. So it was either Kevin's Hines story or Kevin, uh, the one of the interactions with Kevin Briggs. Um, but yeah, that was it. He just wanted one person to acknowledge him, to say hi, and that would have changed his mind. Yeah, so that that's kind of what I was gonna get at as far as my uh, last piece words um, is to be, you know, especially for me, someone who's gone through suicide and substance use. Um, I think it's very key for all of us to be very open and transparent. As much, you know, I know it's not very comfortable for some people to really open up, but as much as possible. Because I know that itself has a ripple effect. Like just me telling my story to, you know, Brian and Jen and other people, then it gives them an outlet too to be like, hey, you know, if they're talking to somebody and they're struggling with something, they can be like, I know someone that knows, you know, has walked that same path and can help you out a lot. Um, I think it's very key for anyone that has gone through that stuff, made it out the other side to be very, very transparent and open about it. Like, for me, I go, my AA club once a month goes to um, Unity Hospital in Fridley. I don't know if any of you guys know about that place, but they have an inpatient unit there, and we go there and just open up and tell our stories of what happened, what we used to be like, and where we are now. Um, but I think, yeah, I think it's just very key to be transparent and open. Because, yeah, I can't remember what what video it was, but I know in one of those, in the SIO course that we took, um, Jen had showed, and the person said, you know, like, it was two or three days that they had did, stood up there before they did their attempt, and they told themselves if someone just said hi, or, you know, like, what are you doing up there type of thing, they would have got down. So it's one of those things that it's it's hard to talk about, but we got to talk about it, because you never know, like, someone could be waiting on you just to be like, hey, man, what's up? How's it going? Just to, you know, give a little friendly, hi, how you doing type of thing. So I think just being open and transparent is what I was going to say. But, yeah, just being a, a, a decent human being and saying hi to people goes a long way. Yeah. Even a, a friendly smile, you know. No, I appreciate that. Brian, do you have any uh, final thoughts or comments you want to make? No, thank you for having us on. Um it, in letting us talk about this difficult subject but it needs to be talked about more often than not. So I really well, appreciate it. Not a problem, you know, and I fully intend to have you guys back on, you know, and down the road, you know, I want to talk about um, the subject further and keep it to the forefront. I just don't want it to be a, a once a year, you know, for suicide awareness and prevention month in September. I want it to be a consistent subject that is brought up. Um, I appreciate you guys joining and supporting uh, hometown here outdoors and other individuals you've honestly and probably have never met, you know, when it comes to assisting with people and suicide, um, it's, it's, it's a lot. And, um, I think it's very beneficial that, you know, the community knows that, you know, that the national guard is pretty heavily invested in this at this point, you know, and trying to make a difference and, you know, and we're trying to jump on their, their, uh, what is the term here? I'm looking for the, jump on uh, the back of their wagon in order to, you know, help capitalize on some of 
what they have to offer since we do have a heavy National Guard presence here in Minnesota. And I think it's very beneficial for all professions that, you know, have, even if we don't serve them, you know, outside of HHO membership, I think that it's a very useful system and I appreciate all of it. Um, For our listeners, we do have about 15 field staff uh, amongst Minnesota and one in Colorado and a lot of our active duty or soldiers that we do have on staff have been through assist training outside of HHO. So if you're ever feeling like you need to reach out, you know, there are individuals who are trained that can help speak with you and our people are really easy to talk to and relate to. Um, New England chapter has a training coming up in October. They're going to have the whole New England team go and go through it down there over there. And then uh, we're looking to do one in Texas. Um, that will hopefully have additional field staff from a regional area going through the assist training down there. Um, and then coming up again here in October uh, 2022, you'll see us talk about the Cole J. Lutz Memorial Walk, you know, for the suicide prevention and awareness. Uh, in Stillwater, Minnesota here, we're going to do a uh, five and a half mile walk to raise awareness across the Minnesota-Wisconsin border here over the St. Croix River. and uh, we are there to help raise awareness and, and we get a lot of people involved. Um, not only do we talk about suicide, but we also go and memorialize Cole, um, which is the brother of Clint Lutz who took his own life. And uh, not only did we remember him, but everybody else who has taken their own lives, that'll be at the Stillwater veterans Memorial. And we will have honor guard there to memorialize individuals as well as some bagpipes Um um, and then also um, a chaplain. I think you guys know retired chaplain Morris, I would assume. He'll be there. Um, and it'll be just uh, a good time to come meet people um, and be able to share a common um, difficult situation that we're all trying to break the stigma of. So uh, at any given time, if you or others are feeling like you have you're currently in a dark time and you can't get out of it, please reach out to one of us or contact that suicide line at 988. It's a very good resource. Um, and we will do everything we can to get you off that couch and uh, into the outdoors and make some new friends and acquaintances that will turn into a larger bond in time in order to uh, break that mental health situation that you might be in to create a new passion for something in the outdoors that might help you. Um, be able to get past those hurdles in a better way. So, but uh, with that, I want to thank these individuals again. Thank you for being here. Uh, I will say it in order. Staff Sergeant, Sergeant First Class, and Sergeant Major. Thank you. Thanks for having us. Thank you, Chris. No problem. So uh, I'm just going to end the podcast here, but don't hop off. I want to talk to you guys for a few more minutes, but uh, thank you listeners and uh, feel free to uh, reach out to us at any given time. Thank you. Thank you for listening to the Hometown Hero Outdoors podcast. For more information about Hometown Hero Outdoors, visit our webpage at www.hometownherooutdoors.org.